Reading once again this morning from Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will." so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Father, we pray now that you would bless this, the reading of your word. This is the word of the living God. And we pray that you would teach us from it, drive it to our hearts, so that we believe and walk with you. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. Well, it's good to see everyone here, and I see a number of faces that uh, are visiting with us today. We're very glad that you're with us as well, and uh, pray that God would bless you and uh, and teach you uh, as we go into this part of our worship time, which centers each week on the Word of God. Uh, this week, I was not able to <clears throat> not able to get here and study for John's John 11. So. Uh, Lord willing, I'll be that this week. But uh, this morning, I want to fall back to uh, Ephesians one, and I'm going to. I'm going to. Ent- Last week, I, I brought a, a sermon on uh, the predestination, the inheritance that we receive from God, and from verses eleven and twelve. And this week, I want to back up just a little bit. I want to back up to verse four where he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. What is it that keeps the Christian going forth, forward in faithfulness to the Lord without just turning and abandoning everything 
that we say we have in the Lord? What is it that causes a person to persevere through their entire lives, through hardships and struggles and temptations and uh, tragedies? What is it that keeps us what is it that keeps us on solid ground as believers and as a church? For we live in a day when many who name the name of God deny Him by the very acts that they and things that they do in their lives and the way they live. There are many churches today who have abandoned the Word of God for other things, allowing other things to come in and take the place of the of the gospel that God has given to us. Why do why are some why do some adhere on and move on in spite of the culture, in spite of the society? The thing that keeps us faithful is that because we are in Christ. We're in Christ. That phrase, being in Christ... Being in Him, or the equivalent of that, occurs eight times just in Ephesians chapter 1. In Christ, in Him, in the Beloved. It occurs 164 times in Paul's writings across his epistles. It is a major point that Paul tries to make. That we are... We are in this world, but we are not of this world because we are in Christ. And that's what keeps us going. That's what keeps us faithful. That's what makes us follow what God has given to us. We don't have that ability in and of ourselves. Our whole life is structured by the Holy Spirit who places us in Christ and Christ in us. So these phrases mean more than just believing on Christ or being saved by His atonement. These phrases mean that we are joined to Christ in one spiritual body so that what is true of Christ is true of us. On that basis, Paul goes on to say, In chapter 2, verse 6, that we are raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places. Or literally in the heavenly realms or in the heavenlies. This is a difficult concept. And the Bible uses numerous imagery to... Teach us what this looks like. For example, the, the imagery of a husband and wife and becoming one flesh in a marriage relationship. Or the union of the vine and the branches from John chapter 15. The wholeness of a spiritual temple in which Christ is the foundation and we are the individual stones being built up into a spiritual house. The union of the head and the, who is Christ and the members of the body who are His people. 
his church into one organism. Whether we understand it or not, these things are true. Our union with Christ, our union with Christ in one sense, is one of the most important things that we can understand. It is the very essence of what our salvation is. John Murray, Bible commentator from the from uh, the early the last century, <clears throat> writes: Union with Christ has its source in the election of God the Father before the foundation of the world, and it has its fruition in the glorification of the sons of God. The perspective of God's people is not. Narrow. It has the expanse of eternity. Its orbit has two focuses. One, the electing love of God the Father in the councils of eternity. And the other, the glorification with Christ in the manifestation of His glory. The former has no beginning and the latter has no end. Think of it. Your whole life as a believer... Your whole life is planned by God. Chosen before you ever existed, before anything ever existed. And and kept all the way through your entire life until finally glorified with the Father, with Christ in heaven. So... Today I want to concentrate on this this phrase in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him. R.C. Sproul wrote a little book called Chosen by God. If you've never read it, you you should. It will help you greatly understand uh, the work of God in salvation and his calling to those whom he chose. So, our our union with Christ is based upon and has underneath it the foundation of God's choosing, God's electing love, which He shed on us in His mind before we were ever born, before we ever existed. So, what what does that do? What does this... Election of God, this choosing of God, do? Well, it does lots of different things. I'm going to give you some of the things that it does here this morning. Number one, we need to understand that the truth of God's choosing, of election, and we'll use that word uh, because it is a biblical word, the choosing of God. Election is a biblical truth. Now, there are those who deny it. But I don't see how you can deny what the Bible plainly says is a truth without doing damage to the Word of God. Which, to me, would be the most fearful thing in the world that I could do would be to do damage to the Word of God. It is biblical because 
Not only because it is found in the scriptures here, but because it is found throughout the scriptures. Number two, the truth of election humbles the sinner and exalts the glory of God. It humbles us. Why did God choose you? Why did he choose me? Was there something in me that he saw that he liked? Was, was there some, was there some uh, thing that I could do that nobody else could do? Is that why he chose me? I can tell you there's nothing in me that would make him choose me. Nothing. And there's nothing in you either. It was his it was his his choice, his choice, his will that brought it all to pass. God the Father takes pleasure. Now listen carefully. He takes pleasure in confounding all man-centered expectations when he exerts his wisdom, power, and grace to choose people for himself in a way other than man-centered expectations in the world. Think of all the ways people are trying to get to God. And none of them work. They're all man-centered. They're all, they all come from human wisdom which is fallen. And they're led into all kinds of idolatry because of that. Turn to 1 Corinthians with me. Chapter 1. First, in 1 Corinthians, we see God opposing all, this, all the man-centered ways of trying to reach Him. First Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 26 through, uh, through verse uh, 29. Now, I'll, I'll do a little commenta- commentating as we read through this. Verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh. That's a very important phrase, that according to the flesh. Because he goes on and he says, Not many mighty, not many noble are called. What's he talking about? He's talking about people. People. He says, I don't call uh, many wise people. I don't call people who are mighty or noble. Not many of them. Some. But God has chosen or literally elected the foolish things of the world. Now that word things can throw you. Because it sounds like he's not talking about people anymore. But he is. He's not talking about objects in the world or animals or, or, or things like that. He's talking about people. So put the word people in, in the place of that word things. But God has chosen the foolish people of the world to put to shame the wise people. And God has chosen the weak people of the world to put to shame the people which think 
they are mighty, which are mighty. And the base people of the world and the people which are despised, God has chosen. And the people which are not to bring to nothing the people that are. He's talking about people. Why did, he, why did he say this? He says, go on and read. So that no flesh, and that's, that shows right there he's talking about people, that no flesh, no human being should glory in his presence. God will not allow anyone to glory in themselves in his presence. Now follow on, verse 30. But by His doing are you in Christ Jesus. You see, it's His doing. It's not our doing. It's not your doing. It's His. From the working of His electing. It's his election, which took place before the foundation of the world, before creation, and His call... He, by, do, by His doing are you in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Reverse it. What were you before God chose you and called you to Himself? We were, we were people who depended on our own wisdom. We were people who thought we were good enough. To get to God. We were people who, had, who had, had just simply lived our lives the way we wanted to live them. With selfishness and sin. And we had no redemption whatsoever. But when Christ came on the, on the scene. When Christ was shown to us as the one who died for us in our place on the cross. We saw him in a different light. We saw that now my wisdom is no good. It's his wisdom. My righteousness is no good. It's his righteousness. My life and the way I was living is no good. Now it's his way of living. That's what redemption does. So that, here's the purpose. Just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'll tell you, when we get there and we're standing before our God, we won't be thinking of ourselves, what we did, how we did it. We'll be thinking of Him and what He did and how He did it. And that's the only praise that will come out of our mouths. And that should be the only praise that comes out of our mouths now. We are far too self-centered. You know, actually, Paul is quoting Jeremiah chapter 9. This is what it says. Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. And let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts 
Boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. No wonder Paul said, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. To which I am crucified to the world and the world to me. Now that same thought is found in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, spoken by our Lord when he says this, Then Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit and said, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding the truth from those who think themselves to be so wise and clever and for revealing it to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it. This way. You see, God, God is not impressed with the wisdom of people. He's not impressed with their might. He's not impressed with their lives, their, their do-good deeds. He's impressed with one thing, and that is that they boast in Him. God did not... Ch- Choose Christ to be the sacrifice for sinners. And then sit back and wait for human self-determination to decide who will be in Christ. Some people think of God as though he's, he's giving out his gospel and he's just sitting back wringing his hands saying, Oh, I hope they believe it. Oh, I hope they believe. Oh, if they would just, if they would just come to me and believe, I'd save them. No, that's not our God. That's not the way he operated. On the contrary, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that it is his doing that we're in Christ Jesus. And that humbles the sinner and it exalts the glory of God. I have nothing to boast in. But I can boast in him because he's done everything. He's done it all. Number three. The truth of election tends to preserve the church from slipping toward false philosophies of life. Without a solid grasp, hear me carefully, without a solid grasp of God's choosing, of God's election, there is a tendency to slide or slip toward man-centered thinking. The fact that God has chosen. The fact that it was His will and not ours. That did it. Keeps us on a straight path. History has shown that Unitarianism, which is a a direct rejection of the Trinity and of the divinity of Christ, and Universalism, the doctrine that says that everybody's going to get there eventually anyway, doesn't matter what religion you are, Those are lies. And today we have this social justice movement, this uh, embrace of uh, Marxian philosophy that has crept into the church and even into many Bible-believing churches. It's nothing more than a distraction, a man-centered 
way of following. These things come as a result of the neglect of sound doctrine and of sound teaching. Paul told Timothy to preach that which becomes sound doctrine. History has recorded these things in the past. It happened during Spurgeon's day, a hundred years, more than a hundred years ago now. Speaking of the truth of God's sovereign election, Spurgeon wrote this, quote, There followed an age of driveling, first into Arminianism and then into Unitarianism, until it almost ceased to be. O oh, fools and slow of heart, will not history teach them? No, it will not if the Bible does not. Surely evil days are near if the church shall not again clasp the truth to her heart. Draw these things to your heart. Draw them to your life so that you stay solid and unmovable in your faith and in your work for God. After the great awakening of the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards saw the decline of doctrinal truth as election was relegated to the will of man and Arminianism. And like Spurgeon's time, it led to Unitarianism and Universalism. Someone has written, It seems that there is something about the truth of God's free and sovereign election that stands guard over the mind and the heart of the church and keeps her alert to the tendencies and shifts that that swing wide from the plumb line of God's Word. The doctrine of election, the sovereign election of God is the plumb line that we look to It's what we believe in according to the Scriptures. That God Himself worked in our hearts to bring us to Himself, to bring us to Christ. And not we ourselves. That's why we must teach it. That's why we must hold to its truth. Because it is the very framework of our existence as Bible believers. And we depend on it. Number four. The truth of election is the good news of a salvation that is not just offered, but effected. Now, what do I mean by that? You say, well, is not the gospel offered? Certainly it is. Every time time the gospel is presented, every time it's preached, every time it's read in a tract, it it is offered. And that's the way God intended it. Go out and preach the gospel to every creature. That's what he said. But the call to salvation of sinners is God's guarantee that he not only invites them to be saved and delivered from their sin, but that he actually delivers them from their sin. It's not just a suppose thing. Listen, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. You know, we look at Scripture so many times and we just 
We just pass right over things that are so important. And I think this is one of those things. And it's found in several different verses that I'm going to talk about here. But notice, this was foretold to Joseph by the angel. And this is what the angel said. Verse 21. Speaking of Mary, the angel said, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call call his name Jesus, for he will save. See, we just go right past that, don't we? For he will save his people from the sins. Okay. Well, no. He will save them. A definite act that he is going to do. People don't save themselves. They can't save themselves. They don't want to save themselves. But he will save them from their sin. According to Romans chapter 8 verse 30, the predestined ones are the ones called. And the called ones are the ones justified. And the justified ones are the ones he will glorify or are glorified. It's spoken in the, it's spoken in the future tense or in the past tense as though it already happened. So if you're here in Christ Jesus, <clears throat> you, you're justified already. You are, you are called already, and you are glorified already in the mind of God. All we're waiting for is that to happen in reality. <clears throat> and one day it will. <clears throat> All of this is rooted in God's sovereign election of His people. His choice of sinners For himself brought to Christ in time through the power of the Spirit. It's a sure thing. That's why, excuse me, that's why missionaries can go to the field with confidence that they're going to be successful. Confidence. Because God has said, I'm going to save people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. They'll all, all of those whom I have chosen will come to me, Jesus said. The Father will bring them to me. And I won't cast any of them out. I'll keep them all. With that kind of thing, with that kind of confidence, you can go out and preach the gospel and walk away knowing that you did what you're supposed to do and now God's going to do the rest. I can't imagine the frustration of doing ministry of preaching the gospel, thinking that I had to say just the right thing or I had to do just the right thing in order for people to be saved. That would drive me crazy. I don't have to worry about that. I just preach what it says and then let it fall on who it falls on. Number five. That's, and by the way, that's really good news. Number five. The truth of election enables us to stand up to the demands for holiness in the Scripture and yet have assurance of salvation. Have you ever doubted your salvation? Oh, I have. 
Sure, I have. Many times. But here's what, here's what the truth of election does. It shores up within us the fact that God is the one who started this and God is the one who will finish it, not me. Oh, I'm involved. And as long as I submit myself to the will of God and obey Him, I have peace in my heart. <clears throat> but we're not always there, are we? Did you ever ask yourself, why do I do the things I do as a Christian? And you say, you say, here I am again, Lord. Here I am. For the hundredth or thousandth time, repenting of the same things. And that's really good news, really, if you think about it. Because it shows that God is working in the heart to draw you into holiness with Him. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Therefore, brethren, be more diligent to make your call and an election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Work hard to prove that you really are among those who are called and chosen by God. Doing this, you'll never stumble. Never fall away. Election is the final ground of assurance because since it is God's commitment to save those whom He will effectually call, it is also God's commitment to enable them to live the Christian life and be obedient and persevere to the end. People that walk away from the Lord and, and, and seemingly don't care and never come back, they're just proving that they were never saved to start with. Being confident of this very thing, that God, He who has begun this good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And in the day of Jesus Christ, it'll be all complete. We'll be like Him. We'll have a body like His. It'll be glory. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more uh, unbelief. Uh, there'll be no more, no more worry. We'll never have to say, Lord, here I am again with this thing or that. It'll be gone. Election gives us that assurance that what God started, He's going to finish. Number six. I think this is probably the last one I'll be able to do. Number six. The truth of election opens to us the overwhelming experience of being loved personally with the unbreakable electing love of God. I'll be honest with you. I've had difficulty over the years with whether or not whether or not God loves me because I think I look too much at myself and I look less at Him. You see, look to Him. That's where assurance comes from. Look to Him. <clears throat> As we... Uh, I did a study a few years back, I can't remember, quite a few years back, on the love of God. Quite a few lessons uh, were taught on that subject. And 
we found in that that there is a general love that God has for His creation, that God loves His creation. He He takes care of it. He feeds the sparrows. He feeds the animals. He takes care of the vegetation of the earth and all, all of that. He loves His creation in a general way. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. Why? Because He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. See, God... God takes care, generally, of His creation. But many people take the love of God only in terms of a love that offers and then waits for people to respond. That is not what the Bible teaches with regard to the love of God. Nevertheless, Paul writes in Acts 14, Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good. And he gave rain from heaven in his fruitful seasons. So God loves generally, but there is a specific love that God has for his chosen ones. It It is a love that draws them to himself. You remember in John 4 when we talked about the woman at the well? And what did Jesus say? Here's another one of those verses that we can just sort of skip over the words. This is what he said to the woman. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him. Don't think of those I shall give in terms of uh, just passing by. Just something that he may do or may not do. No, he will give the water of life to those whom he has chosen. And I shall give him and it will become a fountain of well of water springing up to everlasting life. This is the work of God's Holy Spirit. It is effectual. And it comes with the proclamation of the gospel and of the cross of Christ. I missed a page. Okay, well, I'm going to have to stop. Um, It makes me want to go on and preach through Ephesians again. But I'm going to show you, Lord willing, next week. I know I said that last week, didn't I? But I've been very sick uh, this past week, so I wasn't able to get in here. But next week I'm going to show you a uh, start in John 11. And and John 11 is a a living picture of God's sovereign choice in giving life. To the dead hearts, dead souls of people. 
you will see in it the sovereignty of God worked out like no other miracle that Jesus ever did. So I say to you this morning, people ask me sometimes, well, uh, how do I know whether I'm elect or not? How do I know if God's chosen me? And I say to you, you want to know how? What have you done with Jesus? Have you believed on Him? Have you trusted Him as the Lord of your life, as the Savior to forgive your sins? And are you following Him? Are you in love with Christ? Do you, is He the treasure of your life? That's how you know you've been chosen. If you haven't, believe Him today. Trust Him today. Don't go out of these doors without in your heart falling on your knees and crying out for mercy and forgiveness. And when you come to Him with that kind of humility, realizing that you are a lost sinner who needs salvation, He saves. He forgives. And then go on and follow Him. Live for Him. Trust in Him. Fall in love with Him. And He will become the joy of your heart and of your life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this Lord's Day and for the love that You have shown to us in choosing us. That great electing, choosing love of God that sovereign work of His that He does in choosing sinners to be His own. It humbles us, Lord, because we're not worthy to have it. But You've given it to us in spite of it. It is all by grace. Unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor that You have shown to us in Christ Jesus. So we pray, Lord, that You would that You would be blessed that you would receive glory and that you would receive honor because you are the one that is worthy to have it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.